We've been talking about, uh, in, as part of this broad uh, series on sin, salvation, and the Savior, uh, what the gospel is not. And, you know, we've spent time talking about repentance uh, in the past three weeks on that. We've talked about redemption. We've talked about a number of things. We looked at 1 John 3. We looked at James 2. So we're just kind of, no particular order, but we're just going through different issues, topics, key terms related to salvation. And last week we introduced uh, this topic of what the gospel uh, is not. And we spent time sort of talking about our cultural milieu, our cultural um, just mindset and worldview that is prevalent uh, today. And I think that was very helpful to kind of review that and think about things in, its, in their context. And so we compared or contrasted pre-modern world, modern world, and post-modern world. And now, tonight, as we continue down this road, uh, eventually we're going to get to at least 10 things that the gospel is not, 10, and 10 common misconceptions about the gospel. But, so, but in the precursor to that, I'm sort of laying the foundation on, you know, what is the gospel, why is this important, what's going on in our culture. So that's kind of the, the roadmap here. We'll be talking about this for several uh, weeks. Um, so having sort of taken a snapshot of the differences between a pre-modern worldview, a modern worldview, and now a postmodern worldview, we want to kind of move into uh, how has the postmodern thinking influenced the church, and in particular, the gospel. Uh, what, what, how, how has the gospel become uh, unclear and cluttered and garbled uh, in our culture today? Um, we know that the devil is blinding men's hearts to the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So this is nothing new. And as we're going to see, I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, but at some point, either tonight or next time, uh, that was one of the first battles that Paul the Apostle dealt with in his very first epistle. I mean, he got saved in 35 AD, spent 14 years just with the Lord and sort of training, and then he launched his first missionary journey from Antioch with Barnabas in 48 AD. And by 49 AD, he's writing the book of Galatians, and what does he do? Right out of the chute, he deals with false gospels and problems with the gospel. So this is not something new, but it's important to understand how attacks on the gospel have taken on different approaches, and, and there's different types of attacks. And we need to be on guard against that, and that's why I'm doing this series on what the gospel is not. And like I said last week, you know, we can talk about what the gospel is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, uh, Christ's atoning work on the cross, uh, Christ um, pro providing salvation for us, all, all of those sort of general descriptions that we use to talk about the gospel, and everybody uh, amens, you know, because we all sort of, yeah, that's right, amen. But when I start to clarify the implications of that and begin to show because the Bible is clear about what the gospel is, that means these other things are not the gospel. That's when people get a little upset, and I tend to step on a few toes. So, uh, so that's kind of what we're going to go through. But let's talk about uh, postmodernism as it relates to theology in general. So as we talked about last time, in the pre-modern world, there was a category of dogmatic theology. In fact, that's what they call it. You look at the textbooks... Uh, from you know the 16, 17, 1800 hundreds, and they 
the, the field was called dogmatic theology, not meaning dogmatic the way we've come to use the term. Typically it means, uh, if you say someone's dogmatic, it means they're opinionated or unwielding or so. But back then it just meant absolute, that this is, this is there's no variance here. Um, once we got into the age of enlightenment and the scientific revolution, or what we called last week the modern era, then theology basically became just another academic discipline. So uh, you could pursue an engineering degree, a medical degree, a law degree, or a theology degree. But they were, you know, they, they, it wasn't, it was, theology was no longer considered the queen of the sciences. Okay. But in postmodern mindset, theology is entirely experiential. It's not rooted in empirical data. There's no standard like the Word of God. Uh, the Bible is just another textbook. So if you go to liberal institutions today, say like Duke Divinity School or Princeton, um, you know they're going to study theology, and you can get a degree in theology, but it's going to be studying all kinds of religious books and textbooks, and the Bible is just going to be one of them, and they're going to use historical criticism to rip apart the Bible and show you what parts are inaccurate and where how it was put together by man and, and so forth. And it's in, But theology has become not something rooted in truth, but something like most things in the postmodern world, uh, experiential. And we talked about last week how you know, a lot of postmodernism has so rapidly spread that it, it, in, in many ways we're already beyond that into the next era of post-truth or post-Christian, right? But to me, they're all just, you know, it's a matter of degree. So I, I still think that postmodernism is an accurate term uh, for the culture in which we live, but we just need to understand that it's, it's rapidly leading to its ultimate conclusion, which is there is no truth, everything's subjective, everything's experiential, and that's certainly true uh, when it comes to uh, theology. So if you were to kind of chart this out, and uh, I've kind of adapted this some years ago from a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, kind of started down that this road, but, I, but they took it a different direction, but I kind of reworked it, so I just want to make sure and give credit where credit is due. Uh, but in the pre-modern church, as it moved from pre-modern era into the modern era, remember 1789 to 1989, what you had was this divide between conservative theology and liberal theology. And that worked itself out, let's say, in America, in the West, through the what was called the modernist and fundamentalist controversy, going back to the early 20th century and all the way through the... 30s, 40s, 50s of the last century. And so you had all of these denominational splits because some churches were conservative. And what do we mean by conservative in this context? Any any guesses or anybody know? Well, just sticking with what the Word of God says. Exactly. Yep. And specifically the doctrine of inerrancy. So basically you could you could label these two uh, categories in, believes in inerrancy, conservative theology, or denies inerrancy, liberal theology. Inerrancy is the belief that the Bible is the Word of God and contains no errors in the original autographs. That it, when the quill hit the sheep's begin, it was the divine self-revelation of God, completely perfect, in perfect accord with truth, in perfect accord with science. Okay, 
So uh, many denominations, because uh, it, it starts out in the academy, so where, where uh, lies and deception and false teaching first start is typically in, in higher education. So in fact, the, the, it's often said that you know, the further you get from the pew, the more liberal you are. So in other words, college professors and boards and administrators tend to be very liberal. That's how they get appointed to those positions. It's usually favors and money and donations. They give a million dollars to a school, they put them on the board. Then it's the board that hires the faculty who tend to be also liberal but not quite as liberal. And then the faculty teach the students who naturally graduate more liberal. Then they get into the pulpit and begin to teach liberal theology and eventually it trickles down into the pew. So, you know, the pew, people in the pew in the churches tend to be more conservative than those in the pulpit who tend to be more conservative than those in the classroom who tend to be more conservative than those in the administration of the institutions. But they're all, it's, it's, a, it's a slippery slope. And so when you get a new professor from a liberal seminary, I mean a new uh, pastor from a liberal seminary, uh, he's going to come in and everybody likes him and he's articulate and he's giving all these newfangled ideas and using all these big fancy words. And first thing you know, people in the pew that used to believe in Jonah and the whale and used to believe in the parting of the Red Sea and used to believe in a literal Adam and Eve and so forth, begin to say, well, this guy, he's seminary trained, he must be smart, he must know better than I do, and they begin to adopt those views. And so that's what was happening, you know, for 100 years. And so you get to the turn of the 20th century, and all of a sudden there begins to be these battles between conservative churches or people within churches that, that were conservative, excuse me, this week's sponsor, last week it was Sonic, this week it's Firehouse Subs, sponsor for today's show. Um, <clears throat> now you always know where I eat dinner by what kind of cup I have. Um, anyway, the people that were conservative began to grumble and complain, oh, this isn't right, we don't feel it. Eventually what they would do is they'd leave and they'd start a new church. And we saw this most notably with Baptist churches, and I say most notably because they're the biggest denomination in America, and so that's why a lot of people don't realize that today we have over 25 different Baptist denominations in the United States of America. Back in the late 19th century, there were basically, well, there was basically one until the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, the uh, Southern Baptist churches split off. Uh, they, uh, or I guess it was the Northern Baptist churches split off. And they've gone through several name iterations, but uh, there was that divided. But today, uh, going all the way back through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, there's all these different denominations. Conservative Baptist, Independent Fundamental Baptist, um, Baptist F Fellowship, um, General, Association. General Association of Regular Baptists, Southern Baptist, National Baptist, Northern Baptist, American Baptist Church USA. I mean, well, there's a lot of different ones. And the root cause of all of these was doctrinal splits. And so you started to see this growing divide between conservative and liberal churches, again, as we shifted from the pre-modern era into uh, the modern era. And it was often difficult to sort of distinguish or discern. You know, you'd go to a Baptist church and you think, oh, it's a Baptist church, it must be conservative. You know, they're, they're known as being a people of the book, right? 
Uh, but you'd find you'd get in there and you'd find out they're by no means conservative. And so uh, we, we saw this sort of uh, growing uh, divide. But then as we shifted into the postmodern church, which is where we're living today, this became even more uh, difficult to discern. Because essentially, yesterday's conservative church is today's liberal church. And so, believe it or not, conservative churches today are, you know, sort of characterized by a generous orthodoxy, which is uh, Brian McLaren's famous book, The Emergent Church Guy. And basically, anybody that claims to have any type of interest in the Bible, well, you must be conservative, even though they can't connect the dots in Scripture at all. And they're, you know, they, they're only giving lip service to that. So, you know, the Joel Osteens of the world and I mentioned Brian McLaren, Leonard Sweet, some of these, you know, uh, uh, these guys were sort of on the conservative side. And then sort of flowing out of the liberal side, it was, you know, we're not going to really make a big deal about whether the Bible's true or not. That's not who we are. We're all about missional. We're all about social gospel. We're all about changing the world. We want to feed the hungry. We want to clothe the clothless. Uh, we want to make a difference. Now, Nothing wrong with feeding the hungry, is there? Nothing wrong with providing clothes for people. But you can never do that as a substitute for the truth of God's word and the purity, accuracy, and clarity of the gospel. And that's what this missional movement is. So it sounds uh, a pretty you know, impressive. And a lot of people throw the word missional around like a badge of honor. We're a missional church. But when I hear that word and when you hear it, you should raise a red flag. What does that mean? You know, uh, just because they use the term missional doesn't mean they're referring to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It means they've adopted a mindset that says the church is all about social good and it has nothing to do with doctrine. In fact, they just can't stand doctrine. They, they don't like to draw lines of uh, distinction. Uh, and the same thing to a lesser degree, is true of groups like Brian McLaren and the Emergent Church, where they say practice must come before theology. Whereas we say, no, practice flows from theology. If you don't know about God, if you haven't studied God and His Word, you're not going to know how to behave. They say, no, 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 it starts with practice, and then we develop our theology based on that. But the missional concept really downplays theology altogether. So, that's where we are today. How does that affect the gospel? Well, you know, I can kind of show you the evolution, if you will, of the, the, the term gospel and what a lot of people think it means today. So, of course, we'll start with the pure gospel, which is found in God's Word and what we're talking about in this series, which was information on how individuals can be rescued from the penalty of sin and have eternal life. I mean, that, that's pretty much it. That's what the good news is. It's you're going to hell where you're going to burn in torment for all of eternity. But there's good news. You don't have to. God provided a way to pay your penalty, and it's free. It wasn't free to God. It cost him his own son. And it wasn't free to Jesus. It cost him his own blood. But it's free to us, paid for by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I got an email this past week from someone who was watching our 
uh, Wednesday series. I don't, don't know who they are, where they're from, but they didn't like it at all that I taught a literal, eternal place of torment called hell. And, um, and his, their, their comment was, you know, we, we, there is room for a lot of refinement on the evangelical church's teaching on hell. That, you know, basically we need to get with the program, that we're old school, that nobody believes in a literal hell anymore. What are you talking about? He said, there's not one passage that talks about people being tormented forever. Well, I immediately took him to Revelation 20, verse 5, where it says the beast and the false prophet, who were human beings, are going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And he said, well, who can understand the book of Revelation? It's too complex. Nobody really believes that. And I took him to Luke 16. Uh, the Lazarus and the rich man, uh, where the, uh, the rich man was in torment in hell. And he said, oh, that, that's a parable. And I said, no, it's not a parable. Parables never name the people. It's, this guy's name was Lazarus, the, the, not the rich man, but the other guy. And, and it's not called a parable. The text never calls it a parable. <clears throat> Jesus just says there was a guy named Lazarus and there was a rich guy. So, and that's consistent with the rest of teaching. But it didn't matter what verse I threw at him. It didn't matter to him. Because the Bible is not his ultimate authority. His ultimate authority is experience. Uh, that's the theology of today. And it's just hard for people to accept the notion that there will be an eternal place of torment for people who don't receive the free gift of eternal life. And, of course, he also made the argument that, well, that's inconsistent with God's character. And I said, no, it's not. It's perfectly consistent with God's character. It's called justice and holiness and righteousness and honesty. God said if you sin, you're going to die for all of eternity. That's what God's Word says. But He's also loving and merciful and gracious, and He's provided a way that you don't have to do that. So if anybody ends up in eternal torment, that's not on God. That's on you. You can't blame God for that. He said, come one, come all. Whosoever will, come drink of the water of life freely. It's a free gift. It's yours. If you don't take it, then you have nobody to blame but yourself. But that's what the Gospel is, and we're, of course, going to flesh that out from Scripture in the uh, weeks to come. But over time, postmodern theology added this large footnote about increasing your personal happiness and success through God. So that the gospel became about how to find meaning and purpose in life, about how to live your best life now, how to be happy and content and not be depressed. And so instead of you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and apart from faith in Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. The gospel became, are you feeling lonely and discouraged and depressed? Does your life lack meaning and purpose? Come to Jesus and all will be okay. And so, uh, you know, and I, I talk about uh, uh, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. Uh, I've written an article on that years ago, probably 20 years ago now. And... Um, in which he explains the gospel in chapter 7, I believe it's chapter 7, and, uh, and he lists six or seven things that he thinks the gospel is and what the gospel is all about, and none of them have anything to do with sin, the penalty for sin, hell, punishment, torment, none of that. So Jesus didn't shed his blood on the cross so that you could have a happy 70, 80, 90 years on, on earth. He shed his blood on the cross to pay your eternal penalty for sin so that you can spend eternity in heaven and jesus said if you don't believe in me you'll die in your sins you'll die in your sins and then time goes on and another footnote was added about character development and it all became about discipleship and following christ and being moral and being upstanding and having integrity 
And that became the gospel. And then you can't get saved if you don't make this pledge or promise or commitment to, to make you know a better life for yourself. And it really was just a subtle tweak within the realm of so-called conservative theology of the self-help psycho-babble movement for, of you know the Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Phil mindset. Just be good, be better, you know, follow Christ, right? And then another footnote was added about spiritual experience, and it became all this sort of mystical feeling, and do you love Jesus? And, and I've been around folks like that, been around all, all of these kinds of folks, and interacted with them, and talked with them, and I mean, they're sincere people, most of them. Uh, they love the Lord. They just have a really warped view of what the gospel is because they've drifted away from the centrality of the Word of God as the basis for uh, their beliefs. But these are people who, they talk about Jesus, they love Jesus, they, they have this emotional connection they feel to Jesus, but it's not rooted in truth. In the fact, they don't have any interest in studying the Bible. And they get uneasy when you talk about the Bible and how clear it is. They don't like that. Because in their mind, the minute you start saying the Bible is clear, then they're accountable to do what it says and believe what it says. But as long as the Bible is just sort of this nebulous, it's almost like neo-orthodoxy with Karl Barth, where, where Jesus became sort of this subjective concept rather than the living incarnate word being rooted in the living written word. But it's very experiential. And then eventually another was added about social global transformation, which is this notion of the missional gospel. We've got to go dig a well, provide fresh water, and these people really believe they are, quote, sharing the gospel, even though Paul is very clear in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You don't get saved by drinking from a freshwater well. Now, that's helpful, and you've got to be alive to be able to hear and believe the gospel, certainly. So they're not mutually exclusive. But don't ever make the mistake of confusing the articulation of the clear gospel message, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, which everyone must hear and believe if they hope to have eternal life. If you've never heard that, you cannot possibly have eternal life if you've never heard the gospel. And so don't make the mistake of confusing that the evangelistic enterprise of sharing the good news proclaiming the good news with these other good things that might help create a platform for the gospel or help gather a crowd to hear the gospel or just basically do good i mean we ought to help people right we ought we ought to be as long as god has us on this earth we ought to be helping people but that's not sharing the gospel yeah and doesn't that kind of start morphing into, and we're building the kingdom? Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah, the, the whole social gospel movement is very much the kingdom now mindset that our obligation to do all this is because we are ushering in the kingdom. And so, but again, when you don't have a clear understanding of the Bible, and the Bible isn't really the lens through which you see all of life, then of course, you're going to be off base in all kinds of areas. You're not going to understand that the kingdom is a literal earthly with geographic boundaries and a literal temple and a literal throne and a literal king on that throne, namely the Son of God who comes back. Uh, you're not going to understand that. You're going to, you're going to use terms differently than the way Scripture uh, uses them. Uh, and by the way, yeah, go ahead. So do some of these people in these different types or refinements of their idea of the gospel, 
have they started with the basic truth of the gospel and then just layered onto it, or do they not have that basis? Uh, today, I would say most of them don't even have the basic gospel. It's not anywhere to be found in their writings or their teachings. I think over, if you go back in time, as we tried to show with the pre-modern, modern, and post, I think there was a point where it shifted, and it was sort of a a both and or a deviation or an adding to kind of a thing. But these days, it's so far gone. You you know, people in the in the intellectual high, higher education world, they scoff at people like me who who still say you know the Bible says it, I believe it. That settles it. They don't they don't have any use for that. That's simple minded and old school. They they like to come at uh, not just this topic of the gospel, but any theological topic through experiential approaches. And, you know, one of the key principles of Bible study methods is we, we always I- interpret experience in light of the Scripture, not Scripture in light of our experience. And that's what most people do today. And speaking of that, at Not By Works, we just launched yesterday, and this has been something that we've been wanting to do for years, I've been working on it for years, but a Bible study methods course that is available. It's self-paced, self-guided, um, but you know, but I provide feedback on the assignments, and there's a, it's a 38-page study guide, 24 easy-to-follow lessons with textbooks and reading assignments and study questions, and you work your way through it as long as you want. If it takes you two years, that's fine, but it's all uh, available, uh, and uh, I've already had somebody enroll in it. And by the way, if you decide you want to uh, enroll in the course and you complete it and you want to earn credit toward a Bible and theology certificate, uh, we have partnered with Cornerstone Bible Institute, and you can transfer the Bible Study Methods course from Not By Works into that school and get three credit hours for it. So anyway, if you're interested, <clears throat> check that out. I'm really proud of it, really excited about it. It takes 20 years of teaching hermeneutics at several different schools uh, at the college and graduate levels, and I t- took all of that you know, background and experience and sort of cultivated a, a good, solid layperson's how to study the Bible course, and it and someday we may teach that here at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, but in the meantime, it's just a great opportunity uh, for personal study. So yeah. Just to add on to what Gary said too, and and you mentioned Brian McLaren years ago. I used to get Christianity Today, and I found I was reading less and less of the articles in there. And the last art, the last issue I ever read was Brian McLaren, who sold millions and millions of dollars worth of books, unfortunately. And in his article, he stated, we can't know what the gospel is. It may take another 2,000 years to find out how to get saved. And I thought, what a horrible thought that somebody who supposedly is a pastor can even have come out of his mouth that, you know, we've already been on earth 6,000 years, 5,000 years, whatever, and you don't know how to get saved. Yeah, so again, I'm not, I don't want to personally attack I've never met him. I have met Leonard Sweet and some others from that ilk. Um, but um, it's not about their, them personally. It's about what they're teaching. What they're saying. And that is, you know, heretical. There's no other word for it. When you say that we don't know how to get saved, what do you do with John chapter 20, verse 30? Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, the book of John. 
But these are written so that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. I mean, this is, this is the book about the good news. There's plenty of passages that tell us, here's how you pass from death to life. Jesus said in John 5, 24, if you believe in me, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Uh, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but has everlasting life. It's over and over and over again. So, But again, when you don't believe that the Bible is the foundation and the standard, then in his mind, yeah, it's this elusive search. It's nebulous, right? And so that's a good segue into how this sort of morphed into this missional philosophy and the gospel was completely eclipsed. So now you can't even really find it within a lot of these uh, churches, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I remember visiting a, a, a large church, uh, popular church, in, I'll just say in Colorado, to leave it less specific. And, um, I mean, if it was in Colorado, but I'm not going to say the city. And, um, and you know, uh, someone I knew was on staff there, and they were giving me a tour. And, you know, we went into one office, and one of the pastoral staff members has a little statue of a guy giving the finger all right on their desk, and it says a caption like, uh, thank you for giving us a middle finger when we have nothing else to say. Another guy's wearing a t-shirt in, in his office with a cuss word on it. But again, I'm not being legalistic or judging, but that's, that's the culture. When it's not about the Word of God and growing in Christ and spiritual growth and sanctification, it's just a, it's just a system. It's a it's almost like another workplace, right? And we want to get people through the door. And we and I believe they're sincere. I believe they love Jesus. And they have this sort of emotional connection to Jesus. And they can sing and, and, and have rather vibrant worship services, which are very emotive. But, uh, but there's no true north. There's no foundation, no anchor in the Word of God. And that's very common uh, these days. That's what, where we've become. And these are the same people that will be out building a house for someone when their house is destroyed by a tornado or out digging wells in Africa or uh, doing other great work, but they're doing it and thinking they're spreading the gospel when they, they don't know the gospel and may not even be saved. I mean, well, I don't know. They might be if they've trusted in Christ, but we certainly wouldn't know it by their own uh, testimony in, in life. Yeah. Do you have any idea about what sort of message is being shared, like in China, with the underground church? I would suspect it's closer to the biblical gospel than it is the other end, to the missional. Yeah, China is interesting uh, because, you know, you may have been following in, in the last 10 years or so, there's been a sort of a change in the church uh, in China, and there's sort of the state-approved church, and then there's the, still the underground church. And a lot of people that I've talked to are all excited about this church, this government-sanctioned church. It's not government-run, but it's like almost like you get a permit, and now you're allowed to actually have church services. And so people are flocking back to the church, and there's, there's a resurgence of interest in the church. But that makes me really nervous, because to me, that anything that a godless, atheistic, communist culture or government would sanction, that's a problem, first of all. But I do believe that the underground church, which is still there, 
I think you're right. I think these people understand because they're rooted in the Word of God and they're at great risk giving Bibles to people and reading the Bible. And if they read the Bible, I think naturally the Spirit of God is going to use the Word of God. Remember, the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, to help uh, convict them of the truthfulness of the Gospel. So I think you're right. I'm a, I'm a little uh, concerned uh, about the so-called revival movement in, in the above-ground church in China. Uh, not that people aren't getting saved there. I'm sure some are. Um, but uh, I think in the underground church, they probably are more accurate on the gospel. Any other questions? Okay, so everybody kind of understands how the changing mindset that went from having a standard in the modern era, it was either the Bible or science, to now not having a standard, it's all experiential, has influenced the church at large, first of all, and then eventually, of course, the gospel. So that now it's very growing more and more difficult to find uh, Bible teaching churches that get the gospel right. And then, you know, another category wholly separate from this sort of postmodern iteration of the gospel are those churches who uh, believe the Bible, believe that it's their only standard, but they've been influenced by Calvinistic teaching and Reformed theology. And so it's, it's sort of definitely in the conservative camp. They're not uh, sort of shunning the Bible, but boy, they don't, they don't interpret it correctly. And so they're saying that the gospel is about behavior, commitments, pledge, surrender, forsaking sin, all these front-end requirements, or they put a bunch of requirements on the back-end where if you're not doing these things, you didn't really believe. And we're going to get to some of those problem gospels in our list of what the gospel is not. Um, but there's one other thing that I want to do, and I think we've got time to at least introduce it tonight, possibly finish it. And that is sort of answer the question, Does why does this matter? You know, Why do we make such a big deal about this? Um, well, I've kind of already alluded to it. If you go back to Galatians chapter 1, right out of the chute, in fact, let me just look at his opening remarks here, because he really doesn't spend a lot of time with pleasantries at the beginning of this letter. He just says, Paul, an apostle, and then he clarifies what he means by that, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren with me, to the churches in Galatia. Then he gives a little doxology, you know, praise be to God who delivers us from this present age, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. And then, boom, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you. In other words, I am stunned. He gets right to it. Um, so what was the context here? Well, remember, Paul uh, and uh, Barnabas left Antioch, and in, in, in this is 48 AD, and they went on this tour, spreading the gospel, in the region of southern Galatia. Cities like Lystra, Iconium, Derby, and people were getting saved in mass. I mean, this was unbelievable. They were hearing the gospel, realizing that they were a sinner in need of a Savior. They were trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And there was a great harvest of souls. 
But no sooner would Paul leave one city to go to the next, and a group of legalistic Judaizers, they were called, would come in behind him and begin to undo all that he had done. And, and they would, and we have a glimpse of some of what they would teach, and we sort of know because of Paul's response in Galatians and elsewhere, and also we see this in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. Uh, so we kind of, we can piece together what they were saying, and basically what these Judaizers were saying is, and I'm totally uh, uh speculating or, or sort of paraphrasing. So give me some rhetorical license here. But essentially they would say things like, boy, isn't that Paul great? He was great, wasn't he? Oh yeah, he was great, man. He taught us how to have salvation. He taught us how to know the Lord. Well, yeah, yeah, he was great. But let me tell you, there's a little bit more to it than that. And I don't want to disparage Paul, but you know, if you really want to get into heaven, you have to be circumcised and keep the law. And that, that's great that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. We get all that. That's wonderful. But here's what you really have to do. And they began to add legalistic Jewish uh, uh, cultural tendencies to the one condition of faith alone in Christ alone. And these new believers, uh, with no one there to really disciple them, uh, were being swept up in this tide of false teaching. So Paul gets back to Antioch, and gives a report to the church there, and he hears very soon after arriving back after this missionary journey of this report. So, you know, word traveled fast. Obviously, they didn't have email or texting or technology, but somehow word came back that there were these false teachers undermining and confusing these new converts, these new believers. So Paul is so troubled by this and this, and this, by the way, created quite a stir in the early church, so much so, remember, Paul's and, and Barnabas's missionary journey was Acts 13 and 14. The next chapter of Acts, chapter 15, records the famous council meeting of all the early church leaders, Peter, James, and Paul was there too, in Jerusalem, which occurred in 50 AD, where they sort of met to talk about some of these issues. Remember, this was before the, the full Bible was written, still the apostolic age with people with apostolic authority, and there were there were these uh, there was this sort of uh, uh, conflict, if you will, between Judaism and Christianity. Christianity was only 17 years old at this point, from 33 A.D. to 50 A.D., and so there were still a lot of things sort of being developed. It didn't mean the gospel was still being developed. It was clear enough. It was clear in Jesus' own teaching, uh, as recorded in the Gospel of John, among other places. But there was still this cloud of confusion because people were having a hard time letting go of the old way of thinking, which was that you got to do good works to be saved. you got to keep the law to be saved. Now, that's not what the Old Testament taught, but that's what they had come to believe that it taught. Old Testament teaches the same method of salvation as the New Testament, faith alone. Every, belie every person from Adam forward that is saved got saved the same way, by faith, receiving the free gift. Um, but in the first century culture, uh, and for some time before that, the Jews had sort of convinced themselves that you've got to keep these 613 laws, you've got to dot your I's, cross your T's, and if you do all this stuff, circumcision being one of the main ones, you'll be in. Right? So, they had this council meeting to sort of clarify some of that. But Paul is so troubled by what he heard coming out of southern Galatia 
that he doesn't even wait till he gets to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem council. He sits down and writes a letter. You know, now, of course, we know he did this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was guided along by the Holy Spirit. But if you just look at it from a human perspective, it's like, you know, those kind of people that get really angry at some inju small injustice. Maybe they were, you know, mistreated at a store and or they didn't get a refund or they didn't like. So I'm going to write a letter to the manager and they sit down and they write this letter. And they, you know, that's kind of the way Paul felt. He's like, I can't believe these people. I told them the pure gospel. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. He's, it's, it's free. He paid it all. And now they're lining up to get circumcised and do all these other Jewish laws. So what does he say? Even if we or an angel from heaven, he says, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The word accursed there is the Greek word anathema. In fact, the King James, I think, says anathema. And it doesn't necessarily mean uh, hellfire, it most often is used in the context of sort of an eternal judgment. But the word itself just means come under strict judgment. And, uh, and so I don't know that he's, he's not necessarily saying that anyone who ever preaches a false gospel is going to hell. There are plenty of people who are saved that preach a false gospel because they're just in error. Uh, so I don't think he's necessarily intending to assign these Judaizers to heaven or hell by the use of that word. It's just a very strong word that he employs to say how serious this error is. And he goes on, I marvel, or actually back in verses 6 and 7, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. Now in the King James, this says, I marvel, uh, something to the effect of, I uh, marvel that you're turning away so soon to him who called you in the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is not another. Same English word. And it's a little bit confusing. Uh, he says, I marvel that you're turning to another gospel, but it's not another gospel. Well, And you're thinking, which is it? Well, it's two different Greek words. The New King James is a little bit help, more helpful because at least it uses two different English words to translate the two Greek words. But the first one, if we go back, the word different is the word heteros, and it means another of a different kind, like completely different. Whereas this word another, translated another in the New King James, is the word alas, and it means another of the same kind. So similar, but slightly different. And what he's saying is you're turning to a gospel that is completely different, right? You're not just turning to some slight modification of the gospel. You are being led astray by a completely different gospel. And I, I often illustrated that difference this way. So the word another, uh, which is a, another of the same kind, like different but not, not all that different, would be like comparing a, a red delicious apple to say a Braeburn apple. Right? They're both apples. In fact, some people might not have a discriminating taste and they might say an apple's an apple, right? I mean, they're technically different though, right? A, a red delicious apple is not the same as a Braeburn apple or a Granny Smith, or any other kind of an apple. Um, but the gospel that the Galatians were turning to was not that kind of different. It was completely different. Uh, it was, you know, the word, a different gospel, heteros gospel. So that'd be like comparing an apple, say, to an orange. I mean, nobody would confuse those two. But it's really even stronger word than that because you could at least claim that both apples and oranges are fruits 
but so they're similar but different. But Paul is saying, no, they're not even close. It's like comparing an apple to, say, poison. <laughs> I mean, completely different, not even in the same species or category. In fact, he goes on to say that the ones uh, peddling this false gospel, this poisonous gospel, are perverting the gospel of Christ. That's the New King James. The word pervert is the Greek word metastrepho. And it's only used two other times besides right there in Galatians 1.7 in the New Testament in its various forms. It, the, the literal dictionary definition or lexical definition is to distort or twist. So it's really a good word because that's exactly what these Judaizers were doing. And, and the New King James says pervert, but it's distorting and twisting. But it's, it's actually even more significant than that. If you look at the other two occurrences of this word in the New Testament, how it's used, it, it kind of helps us understand the reason Paul chose that word, metastrepho. It's used by Peter in Acts chapter 2 when he quotes from Joel 2 in his Pentecost sermon. And the quote is, The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. Now, never mind what he's saying there in that context. The point is that word turned in yellow there on the screen, that's the word metastrepho. It's translated turned here rather than pervert. And then the only other place it's used in the New Testament is by James, the Lord's brother, in James 4, 9. Let your laughter be turned, same word, metastrepho, to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Now, if you look at those other two contexts in Acts and James, it kind of gives a sense of what metastrepho means. Darkness, I mean, light or sun becomes darkness. Laughter becomes mourning. It's a 180 degree turn. And that's exactly what these Judaizers were doing with the gospel by adding any kind of works to it. And it really upset Paul because, as we've said before, grace is absolutely free. If it's not free, it's not grace, right? So it has to be free. And adding any requirement, however well-intentioned or well-meaning or cultural, whatever, it doesn't matter. It, there's nothing that we must do to be saved other than believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for our sins. And these Judaizers were coming along with some pretty blatant added requirements, which, according to Paul, meant they were turning the gospel 180 degrees on its head. This wasn't just a slight modification. This was turning light into darkness and laughter into gloom. So what we are getting at here in this study is before you can know what the gospel is not, we have to strive for precision. We have to know what the gospel is. In other words, what precisely must I believe if I want to have eternal life? Most people who have even a passing understanding of the Bible know that it's by faith. In fact, most major Christian Religions, denominations, I'm thinking Roman Catholicism, uh, Protestantism, independent Bible churches, they all say, oh yeah, it's saved by faith. Calvinism, but what do you mean by faith? And what precise do you have to believe in? Roman Catholics say, yeah, it's faith, but you've got to have faith in the sacramental system, the seven sacraments. Or yeah, it's faith, but you've got to have faith in this sense of personal allegiance and a pledge and promise to obey. 
So what, is, what do we mean when we say believe in Jesus and you'll be saved? What does the Bible mean by that? What precisely must we believe to be saved? So to use an analogy, if, I, if we say you've got to believe the gospel to be saved, and that is a proper terminology. There are passages, I don't have the time to get into it right now, maybe we'll get into that next time, that use the term gospel to refer to that which must be believed to be saved. So it's okay to say believe the gospel. Um, and so if we call that X, what, what is X? you got to believe X. Well, we, we need to know what X is, right? X is the content of saving faith. What must we believe, right? As you've heard me say many times, people can and do believe many things in life. But that doesn't save them. If I believe uh, in Santa Claus, that's faith. But that faith's not going to get me to heaven. And it's also misplaced faith because it's not accurate. But if I believe in, you know, any, any a lot of things. We, we, if you believe that chair is going to hold you up, that's faith, right? But that's not going to get you to heaven. No one gets to heaven because they believe a chair will hold them up. So faith is just the confidence or assurance in something, like we talked about two weeks ago in our Hebrews series. It's not, it, it, faith has to meet the right object. What exactly must you believe? You don't just believe you believe in something, right? Faith has to have an object, right? It is a transitive verb, both in English and in Greek. That means it must have an object, right? If I said to you, do you believe? What are you going to say? Believe what? There's no context. No, so it's got to have an object. So that's what we're striving at in this study. What's that object? What is it that when believed brings eternal life? We're suggesting, because the Bible teaches this, that it's the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. So what is the gospel? We need to define it. And what's, what it, the gospel is not as well. So, um, you know, the content of saving faith is just a sort of theological, technical way to describe, you know, to answer that question, what precisely must I believe to be saved? What is it? What is that information. Now, in a postmodern world, that's too granular. That's too, we don't care. Don't, don't get so specific. Just, you know, do you love Jesus? Great, you're in, you know. Uh, we uh, knew of a church one time uh, in Texas that was a kind of a typical postmodern church, and their method of evangelism was, uh, they were a mega church, uh, big, big church, several thousand people, and they wanted to reach seekers. They wanted to reach people who didn't come to church and, 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 and they thought were lost. And they probably were lost, most of these people. So here's how they evangelize them. You walk into this massive atrium and they have these two big sort of stations set up. And one of them is labeled seeker. One of them is labeled follower. And they encourage you in their literature and their program and stuff to put your name on a card. They had all these index cards out. Uh, if you don't, if you're not a Christian, or you're not sure what Christianity is, or you're, you know you're not sure what this is all about, put your name on a card and drop it in the big, uh, big barrel, really type thing that was labeled seeker, and then come on in, sit down, join a Sunday school class, join a small group, be, play on the team, church softball team, and just get a part, be a part of the community. And over time, as you feel more comfortable and feel like, yeah, you know, this Christianity thing's for me. Then you come in and you take and you move your card from the seeker bin over to the follower bin, and now you're a Christian. That's it. That's the gospel. 
But there's no talk of sin and the penalty for sin. There's no talk of Jesus dying for your sins. And most importantly, there's no talk of faith. There has to be a moment when faith meets the gospel, when you make the choice volitionally to believe in Jesus. You went from, I don't believe in Jesus, or I don't believe that I need him as my Savior, that he died and rose again for my personal sins. I mean, people can believe that he existed, but as we're going to say in just a second, that doesn't mean you're saved. So at that moment, when you go from belief, from belief in whatever else you believed in to believing in Jesus Christ and him alone as your only hope of salvation, you're born again. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're adopted into the family of God. You're regenerated. You're justified. You're reconciled to a holy God. All of these things. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All these things happen at that moment. So we call this the object of faith, the content of saving faith. So, you know, we could ask the question this way. Is the content of saving faith knowable? Is that information something that we can know? I mean, if... If salvation comes from believing something, is it possible to find out or know what that something is? Okay. Again, in a postmodern world, drilling down to sort of an absolute identity is not something they thrive on. But we're asking a philosophical question. The question is, is the content of saving faith noble? In other words... If you have to believe something to be saved, is it possible for me to know what that something is? Well, if the answer to that question is no, then no one could ever be saved. Because if you have to believe something to be saved, but you can never figure out what that something is, nobody can be saved, right? Uh, and everyone ends up in hell. But if the answer to this question is yes, it's possible to identify what precisely someone must believe to be saved, then there's hope. And the next logical question becomes, okay, what is it? <laughs> if it's possible to know what it is, tell me what it is, and I'd like to believe it, right? So what must we believe about Jesus to have eternal life? Is it simply that he exists, that he walked on water, that he's a Jew, that he's from Nazareth, that he had 12 disciples, that he turned water into mine? I mean, a lot of things we could believe about Jesus that don't save us. And in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have a great quote in there from Charles Ryrie. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but essentially he's saying some of these th same things. These, you can believe this and that's true. You can believe this and that's true. And you can believe this and that's true. But just because it's true and you believe it doesn't mean you're going to heaven. What precisely must I believe about Jesus if I want to have eternal life? Well, that information is what the Bible defines as the gospel and clearly tells us what that information is. So... Uh, I don't want to leave you hanging with such a weighty question. I mean, I'm fairly certain that everyone here tonight probably knows the Lord, but for those who may be watching this on video, uh, the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. And that you need a Savior. You needed someone to shed their blood on your behalf. He did it for you. He died for you. He rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And if you'll place your faith in Him... Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he'll give you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's, that's it in a nutshell. But we'll come back next week and we'll talk more about what the gospel is. And then over time, we'll get into uh, what the gospel is not. Any questions before we close out uh, tonight? Any, any comments or thoughts on anything we've talked about? I was thinking when you were using the word anathema or accursed,
My recollection is that in the Catholic Catechism, it says that if you believe in that you're saved by Christ, Christ, faith in Christ alone, let you be anathema. Oh, that's, wow. That's what, you know, Catholicism yeah. says. Yeah, no, there's a lot more to it. In Christ alone. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think Paul would, would use that strong of a word today if writing to people from the Roman Catholic uh, faith. So. And the other question that I had way back when you were talking about that church that would go unnamed and you walked in and, and you know, somebody had the finger and yeah. the other person. And when you say, you know, I don't want to be judgmental, but aren't we called to be, you're not judging that person's heart or anything, but aren't we to judge like, yeah, that's that's not right. You yeah, yourself a Christian and no question. I, I think we fall into that thing of you know, oh, don't be so judgmental. You know, no, you're right. Yeah, I mean, the word judge is used in a variety of different ways, both in Scripture and in our common parlance. I mean, what I meant is, I'm not trying to personally attack them and, and question their character, but you're exactly right. We have a not only a, a opportunity but a duty to judge the acceptability or not of that thing and it's just it's inappropriate it's wrong but what i'm saying is in that culture those people that i don't think they're intending to be offensive or intending to do something they know to be wrong it's still wrong but uh, but I, I just want to be careful not to kind of paint with too broad of a brush that that's a to me in my mind that was a quintessential example of the postmodern church where there really are no anything goes and it's all about the experience of kind of talking about Jesus and being with Jesus, but any any discussion of Jesus that's not rooted in the living Word of God is is going to get off base, for sure. So, yeah. In 1 Peter 3.21, when it talks about baptism saving you, yeah, um, he's talking about the baptism of the Spirit, right? Or is it... So, he's asking about 1 Peter 3.21. Yeah, absolutely. So, he, he in the context here, he's, you know, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And then we'll skip that next part. That's a discussion for another day. What did he do? Um, but, you know, he's talking about the, the, uh, Noah's Ark as the type. And then he says there's also an anti-type, which is baptism uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the same way Paul's using it in Romans 6. So remember, baptism just means identification. And when it comes to a believer, there's Holy Spirit baptism, which happens at the moment of faith and identifies us with Christ so that we are now in Christ. We're baptized into Christ. But there's also water baptism, which Christians adopted. I mean, that, that existed for several thousand years before Christianity. It was a pagan ritual in the ancient Near East that had nothing to do with even Israel. And then Israel adopted it. And, and there was Jewish different kinds of Jewish baptism, Moses baptism, proselyte baptism. Then you had John the Baptist baptism. Baptism was water baptism was just a cultural thing that we continue to this day that identifies you with something. And in the case of Christianity, water baptism identifies us with other believers. It's basically saying we're part of the team, we're part of the club. It does not save you eternally in any sense. Spirit baptism is what does that, and that happens at the moment you place your faith in Christ. So, yeah, there are a lot of tough texts in there that we could look at, and we'll get to some of them that at first pass seem to add requirements. But one of the rules of Bible study methods that you'll learn in 
my Bible study methods course, if I could put in another plug, is you always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And there are 160 plus passages in the New Testament alone that condition eternal life plainly, unequivocally, unambiguously on faith alone. So when you come up with a few other passages that you read them and you go, wait a minute, did that say we got to do something else? You know that the Bible can't contradict itself, and so you can kind of go from that vantage point. Yes, sir? I was wondering where I would be able to find the, the links to the, to the Jewish people who said it was by works that you got saved plus faith in Christ, the Jewish people who were following Paul around, because I can picture in my mind when I'm trying to talk about that, a few skeptics say, where's your proof on that? Yeah. So, so the Judaizers, we, we get that from um, the argument that Paul makes in Galatians in the six chapters there. He's, he, he's, he sort of addresses them right out of the chute, but then he begins to pick apart their viewpoint. And the, clearly their viewpoint was infusing elements of the law, the Jewish law, into the gospel. And so Paul addresses that really in all six chapters, but he talks about it from the standpoint of sanctification. He said, you were saved by faith. Why are you now trying to be made mature by the law? Don't you realize that's foolish? In fact, he calls them foolish. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you would be thinking this? This is clearly... So we can sort of extrapolate from Paul's teaching in contradiction to what they were teaching, what they were teaching. Does that make sense? Like if I were to give you a whole dissertation on why you know, uh, snow is cold, then you can infer that you must think, you know, if we're having an argument, you must think snow is hot, right? Because otherwise, why would I be arguing? It wouldn't make any sense. So there are a few passages in Acts, uh, not many, but a few where uh, Paul, because most of the Acts is Paul's journeys to the West, so he's mostly dealing with Gentiles a lot of the time. But early on in Acts, you begin to see... Um, especially with Peter and John, interactions with Judaistic Judaizers that were kind of struggling with, you can't be free, you got to do something, you got to keep the law, so we can see that. Yeah, I, I remember in, fla in not flax, axe. Axe, <laughs> flax, axe, yeah. And chia seed, I remember, like, I don't remember the, the Judaizers who were teaching a false gospel, I remember the... Judaizers who were make who were stirring up the crowds, and then there was that silversmith. Oh yeah, D Demetrius. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, I just didn't remember. But he wasn't doing it. He wasn't doing it from the yeah. standpoint of the law. He was doing it from an economical perspective. You know, yeah. Paul was cutting into his business. You know, <laughs> and uh, he didn't like that. So, all right. Well, awesome. Thank you guys. Uh, now we will meet next week. Uh, and uh, of course barring anything unforeseen but then two weeks from tonight we will not meet no midweek Bible study on the 24th and that will be in the newsletters that go out and it will be in the bulletins for those of you that are here on Sunday and we'll remind you but just make a mental note we'll meet next Wednesday the 17th but no midweek Bible study on the 24th alright thank you guys have a great rest of the week